Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. Tonight, you'll hear a conversation about head and neck cancer with Dr. Hari Deshpande. Dr. Deshpande is Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Section of Medical Oncology at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Anish Chagpar. Hari, you know, unlike breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, where there's a defined organ that's involved with these malignancies, head and neck cancer is a rather large area. What exactly do we mean when we're talking about head and neck cancers? Well, we mean uh, cancers of what we call the upper aerodigestive tract, and that's everything from the front of the mouth, the lips, all the way down to the larynx and the upper esophagus. So in other words, we're not talking about the brain, the eyes, um, and generally not cancers of the skin, although in our clinics for head and neck cancer, we do see people with very aggressive skin cancers that occur on the face, and also cancers of the thyroid. So these cancers of the upper aerodigestive tract are not things that a lot of people know about or talk about, at least. Tell us more about how common they are and how they present. Well, they're actually not uncommon. So we see about 50,000 cases, new cases of these cancers every year in this country. They present with symptoms, however, that all of us get. So we're always... Uh, complaining of in the winter especially hoarse voices or sore throats and sometimes a lump or a lymph node in the neck and these are the most common ways they present there are a little more sinister ways they present so if you're coughing up blood that could be a sign of a malignancy but generally if you have a hoarse voice or a sore throat or especially a lump in the neck that doesn't go away by the time you would expect it to, and that's usually after a couple of weeks, it's worth getting checked to see whether it's something else going on. And when you say checked, what does that mean? Is that a blood test? Is that an x-ray? Is that somebody saying, open your mouth and say, ah? Um, How exactly are people checked for these cancers? Well, initially, uh, it's a test that, uh, it's a visit to your primary care physician and they will probably say, open your mouth and say, oh, that's the best way to look at what we call the oral cavity. So that's everything in the mouth back to the start of the tonsils. Um, Unfortunately, you can't see much further back than that. And so the ENT surgeons or ear, nose and throat surgeons have devices that they can look further back with. So either a special mirror that they'll push to the back of the mouth, or a fiber optic laryngoscope, which is a very small, flexible telescope with a camera at the end that can see all the way down 
into the larynx, into the upper esophagus, and see whether there are any malignancies there. And so if you see one of these, how do you make the diagnosis? Can you actually take a biopsy through these little scopes? Yes, you can. Um, obviously, if the cancer is in the front of the mouth and the ENT surgeon can see it right there in the office, they can easily take a biopsy just by looking at it. But these cameras, these uh, laryngoscopes, are able to do biopsies as well. And so they can very quickly make a diagnosis after the specimen's been sent out to the pathologist. And so... How bad are these cancers? I mean, let's suppose you had a sore throat or a cough and it didn't go away. You went and saw your primary care doctor who referred you to the ENT specialists who did the fiber optic laryngoscope and saw something, biopsied it. And now you're sitting in their office and they say, guess what? Uh, you have head and neck cancer. Um, should you be very scared? Is the prognosis terrible? Um, what is that like? Well, just like with most of the cancers that we see, the prognosis depends on the stage. And we come up with a stage based on how big the cancer is, whether or not any lymph nodes are involved, and whether or not it's spread to other parts of the body. The staging of head and neck cancer is a little bit complicated. For most cancers, when you hear stage four, it means it's spread all over the body. For head and neck cancer, it's slightly different. We have a stage 4A, a stage 4B, and a stage 4C. And 4A, even though it sounds like a very aggressive stage, is kind of in the middle of the head and neck staging, and we still treat those cancers for cure. So I would tell people if they first hear that they have a cancer of the head and neck, and by cancer I mean something called a squamous cell cancer, these are the, that's the, what the pathologist looks at under the microscope and the appearance is called a squamous cell cancer. Those cancers, can have very, very good survival rates, even for stage 3 and 4A disease. Hmm. So how do you know what stage you're at? I mean, you know, for many cancers, um, at least not for stage 4, but for earlier stages, it's made on the basis of pathology, where the, you take the cancer out and you send it to the pathologist, and the pathologist tells you exactly how big it is, and you sample some lymph nodes, and they tell you whether those have got cancer in them or not. But in head and neck cancer, do you do, you do that first, or is this imaging? And, and if so, do you image everybody? We tend to image everybody, and the reason for that is, unlike some of the other parts of the body, most people, when they have head and neck cancer, they want to limit the amount of surgery they have. They don't want to lose their ability to swallow. They don't want to lose their voice box or larynx and lose their ability to talk. So we typically do a PET scan and sometimes a CAT scan and an MRI to see exactly what you asked, how big is the cancer, whether or not any lymph nodes are involved. And with that information, we can come up with what's known as a clinical stage. Um, what you were talking about with the surgery and looking at the lymph nodes in the pathology lab is also done in head and neck cancer for some patients, and we call that the pathological stage. But we base most of our treatment decisions on the clinical stage. So you have all of these x-rays that tell you how big the cancer is, how many lymph nodes look like they're involved. How do you decide how to treat these cancers? 
That depends partly on where the cancer is. So generally, we split the head and neck region into different subsites. The first site we call the oral cavity. That's everything from the lips all the way back to the front to the uh, part of the tongue where the front and the back join and just before the tonsils. And for those cancers, we tend to remove them with an operation and then follow it with radiation or, or chemo and radiation if it's a little more advanced. A little further back is the oropharynx. That's the base of the tongue and the tonsil. Now, the cancers in the oral cavity, the anterior tongue cancers, the cheek cancers, those are very heavily related to cigarettes and alcohol. But the cancers of the tonsil and the base of tongue are related to HPV, or 70% or more of them are related to HPV. This is a virus, the human papillomavirus, which is the same virus that causes cervical cancer. And people with tonsil and base of tongue cancers tend to do really very well, a 90% cure rate if they're HPV positive with chemo and radiation without having any surgery. So the, the treatments, as you can imagine, are very different depending on the site of the disease. So two questions. First question is, most people, when they hear HPV, they think about cervical cancer, and they think about it as being sexually transmitted. Is it the same thing in the oropharynx? I mean, is this sexually transmitted? It is a sexually transmitted virus. The way it was found was people noted that ever since the 1970s, the incidence of base of tongue and tonsil cancers has been going up every year. And they feel this is the, a change in the sexual preferences of people over the last few decades and possibly an interaction between the virus and cigarettes that may have made it less common previously and more common now. But either way, these cancers are very um, common um, in the base of tongue and tonsil area and appear to be increasing in incidence. Hmm. So the second question is this. HPV causes these cancers. And so one would hypothesize that people should get an HPV vaccine so that they can reduce the incidence of these head and neck cancers. But on the other hand, people whose cancers are HPV positive tend to do really well with a 90% cure rate. So maybe it's good to get a cancer that's related to HPV. Should people get vaccinated or not? I think they should get vaccinated. I think the evidence for reduction in cases of cervical cancer is one of the best public health benefits that has come out of medicine in recent years. And one of the added benefits we feel will probably be a reduction in the number of oropharyngeal cancers. And I agree, the outcomes for these HPV cancers seem to be better than the non-HPV-related cancers. But even so, who wants to go through chemo and radiation? I think if we can prevent them, it's much better than trying to treat them. So how do you know whether your cancer is HPV positive or not? Is that something that is done on all biopsies when the, you take them out? So until recently, I'd say this was a test that we had to ask for in particular. However, over the past 10 years or so, any cancer that's found in the back of the tongue or the base of the tongue 
or the tonsils are automatically checked for HPV or a protein called P16. This is a, uh, we call this a tumor suppressor gene that's overexpressed in patients who have HPV-related cancers. In other words, if their cancer is related to that virus, then they make more of this protein, which seems to affect the way that the cancers grow and also the way that they respond to treatment. So I'd say it's an automatic test for the tongue, base of tongue and tonsil cancers. If you have a cancer in the front of the tongue or in the larynx, it's not a test that's automatically done. We often have to ask for that in particular for that patient. But that's because those cancers tend not to be related to HPV, right? That's correct. Some estimates put the incidence of HPV-related cancers in those other parts of the head and neck at less than 20%. Mm. And we don't know if they behave better or worse. They're just not as common right now. And so... Is this test done on the initial diagnostic biopsy? Because one would think that if you have a cancer at the base of the tongue or in the tonsil that's HPV positive, then maybe you forego surgery completely because you know that these people will do well with chemo radiation rather than having a surgery to find out the HPV status. Well, that's a question that we're trying to answer in one of our clinical trials. We're part of a big consortium called the ECOG, or Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group, which has come up with a trial headed by Dr. Burtness, who I work with here at Yale, and Dr. Judson, who's one of our surgeons, who are looking at whether or not we can cut back on the surgery as well as cutting back on the chemo and radiation for these patients. Well, it certainly sounds really exciting and could have potential huge impact for patients. We're going to learn more about that after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about head and neck cancers with my guest, Dr. Hari Dishpande. This year, over 200,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven, to test innovative new treatments for lung cancer. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial at Yale aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Hari Dishbande. We're talking about head and neck cancers. Now, Hari, right before the break, we were talking a little bit about a really exciting clinical trial that's ongoing that's trying to see whether we can cut back on some of the side effects of surgery, particularly in such a vital area um, of the head and neck where people are using vital organs to swallow to speak, and so on. Tell me more about other clinical trials that are going on in this area. We have 
clinical trials now for different stages of the disease. So for people who have very early stage disease where we imagine they're only going to need an operation, they have a small cancer that if it's taken out, it's probably going to be cured. We're looking now to see whether or not we can use some of the information from the biopsy beforehand and the specimen that they get from the operation at the end to make decisions on what best treatments we can give to people with more advanced disease. We call these window trials. So people get a biopsy initially. If they find that they have a cancer in the floor of the mouth or the anterior part of the tongue that can be relatively easily removed, then we'll offer those patients seven days of chemotherapy with an agent that one of my colleagues, Dr. Yarbrough, has found that in his labs produce really good changes in the test tubes in cancer cells that suggest it might be very useful for treating those kind of cancers. This particular chemo is called 5-azacytidine. It's been around for a while. We treat people with certain blood cancers and myelodysplastic syndromes with it. And in the lab, it seems to work in favor of treating head and neck cancer cells as well. So what these patients would have to do if they agree to go on the study is they get seven days of this treatment and then after that, on the eighth day, they get their operation and then we look at it in the pathology lab. Hopefully it'll help them, but it'll also help patients who have more advanced disease if it turns out that this is a good treatment. What are the side effects of this drug? I mean, one can imagine that if patients would not normally get this drug, that they might be worried about the side effects of treatment. That's true, and there are side effects as with any chemotherapy. Luckily with this one, they tend to be much less frequent, but they're the similar side effects that probably you've all heard of. Nausea, sometimes vomiting, it can cause tiredness, and sometimes it can cause low blood counts. So we follow these people once a week just to check their blood to make sure that they're not reacting unfavorably to their chemotherapy. But we only give the treatment once and then they don't get it again. So luckily any of the long-term side effects that we might see with some chemotherapies when they're given over and over again, we don't see on this particular trial. Because they only get it for seven days. That's correct. Do they get it seven days consecutively? In this particular trial they do and that's a drawback to the way this particular treatment is given. It has to be given intravenously daily for seven days. Hari, in breast cancer, when we give people chemotherapy up front, as we do with many locally advanced cancers, one of the advantages to giving chemotherapy up front is that sometimes we can get what's called a pathologic complete response, where we as surgeons, when we go in to take out the cancer, find that you as medical oncologists have already wiped out the cancer, and we know that those patients will have an outstanding prognosis. Is it the same in head and neck cancer, and could that be a reason why patients should consider having this trial treatment where potentially this chemotherapy can tell them that their cancer responds very well and potentially that their prognosis is very good? 
I think that's something that we might aim to do in the future, but the idea of this particular trial is only to give the seven days of treatment to see what the effects are on the tumor in the lab under the microscope in the molecular level. So it's what we call a window trial. We're not really looking to see in this particular trial if we can eradicate all of the cancer. Having said that, we do the pre-operative treatment, if you like, for head and neck cancer all the time using chemotherapy and radiation. But unlike with breast cancer, we often don't do an operation at the end, especially if we don't see any sign of disease. Hmm. So we try and avoid an operation altogether with chemo and radiation. And just like with breast cancer, there are some patients who will be completely cured of their disease using that approach of either radiation alone or chemo and radiation together. So how do you know that you have eradicated the disease with chemo radiation if you can't have a pathologist tell you that you've eradicated the disease? That's a good question, and it's a question my patients ask all the time. How do we know if it worked? And what we typically do is after the end of radiation, so the last day of radiation, we will count 12 weeks from that point and then do a PET scan. A PET scan is a radiology test. It involves x-rays and also a nuclear medicine dye that will show up where cancers are fairly accurately in people with head and neck squamous cell cancers. So if their PET scan is very positive before they take the treatment, and then 12 weeks after the radiation has become all all clear, then that's a very good prognostic sign that their cancer is not going to come back. I agree, it's not the same as removing it and showing it under the microscope, but I would say it's the next best thing. Right, I tell all my patients that there's only two people who can tell you anything for sure, God and the pathologists, and while PET scans are very good, they may not be God, at least not for breast cancer, but maybe for head and neck. So tell me more about other studies that are ongoing in head and neck cancer. Well, we have some very exciting studies that my colleague Barbara Burtness has brought to Yale. She's uh, the head of the um, medical oncology head and neck team, and she's looking, among other things, at immunotherapy. And this is something that has a long history at Yale. Basically, we feel that some cancers can actually turn off your immune system and allow themselves to grow to progress and to metastasize. And if you can turn back on the immune system, then maybe you can treat those cancers. We know from work here at Yale and elsewhere that these are good for cancers such as melanoma and non-small cell lung cancer. And it looks like for squamous cell head and neck cancers that these medications The same ones that are being used for melanoma and lung cancer might also be very useful in metastatic head and neck cancer. So we do have a couple of trials using these immune therapies. And we also have the trials, as we mentioned just before the break, where we're trying to actually get rid of some of our treatments, do less surgery, less chemo, and less radiation for patients who we expect to do well, these HPV-positive cancers. So... Immunotherapy is one of these really hot buzzwords these days, and the whole concept of revving up your immune system to fight cancers, I think, is something that many people think is a good idea. Does it have less toxicity than standard chemotherapy? 
I'd say it has different toxicities. So people don't tend to lose their hair. They don't tend to get the nausea and vomiting, but they can get some very strange side effects. They can, if you like, allow their immune system to attack parts of the body that wouldn't normally be attacked. Typically, these are the lungs. They can get something called a pneumonitis or inflammation of the lungs. And basically, they can get inflammation of any part of the body. If it's just a mild rash, we don't worry about it too much. But if someone has difficulty breathing, we have to stop the treatment and give them steroids to try and allow the body to recover. You know, it's interesting. When we think about immunotherapies and we think about immune systems, many of us think about vaccines because that's how a vaccine works. It primes your immune system so that the next time it sees that antigen, that that cell, um, your body says, aha, that is something to attack. And I wonder if particularly for diseases, cancers that are virally mediated, whether immunotherapies are particularly effective? I think that's a very good question. And I know some of my colleagues who are much more versed in immunology may be able to answer that question better. But I would say that some of the best responses that we've seen have been in these virally related cancers. And possibly it's because of the fact that the immune system has been primed in some way. Do you think that um, in people who have been previously vaccinated with HPV vaccine, if they then get uh, a head and neck cancer, presumably it would be an HPV negative uh, uh, cancer, that immunotherapies would work better? I'm, I'm not sure. That is a very good question. I don't know if if we have enough information to look at it yet. But as more and more people are vaccinated, I think those are the sort of questions that we'll be able to answer better. So is vaccines just for girls, uh, HPV vaccines, or has the guidelines changed with regards to that? They've now changed. So you're correct. It used to be for girls and young women between the ages of nine and 26. But now it's for girls and boys of the same age range. And the hope is that if you vaccinate girls, boys, young men and young women, then you will get all of the population that could then cause especially cervical cancers, but also these head and neck cancers to occur. It's felt that if you vaccinate people over the age of 26, the efficacy goes down significantly. And that's why it's not recommended for older people. So that means that all of the people who are our age range are, you know, out of luck. Well, I'd say that they're less likely to respond to the vaccine, yes. Okay. So what can we do aside from vaccines to prevent ourselves from getting head and neck cancers? I think the main thing, even though we're seeing more of these virally related cancers, is definitely not to smoke cigarettes. That's by far the number one cause of head and neck cancers, even with the rise in HPV cancers. Um, The The um, interaction between alcohol and cigarettes is that alcohol by itself doesn't appear to cause these squamous cell cancers, although it can cause other cancers in other parts of the body. But when you combine alcohol and cigarettes, it does increase your risk of getting the squamous cell head and neck cancers. So definitely uh, don't smoke and drink would be my number one 
um, still my number one recommendation. Thank you. So if you are a current smoker, if you quit smoking, are you still at risk for some period um, or do you start to get some risk reduction day one? You pretty much will get a risk reduction very, very quickly. I think day one might be a little too soon, but it does continue to go down and it continues to go down over 10 or 20 years. So definitely stop smoking, but continue to stop smoking um, for a long period of time and your risk will keep going down. We have a smoking cessation group at Yale, which is very popular, and I've had a lot of patients who are very positive about it. But even if you can't get into that group, there are quit lines that you can call, and hopefully a lot of your colleagues and family will be encouraging for you to stop smoking, because most of the time, especially if they're non-smokers, they'll want you not to smoke as well. Right. And when we think about uh, prognosis, you mentioned that the HPV positive cancers are the ones that have the good prognosis. The ones that are not HPV related tend to have a worse prognosis. And those are the ones that are caused by smoking and alcohol. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. Yes. And so how bad is the prognosis? Let's suppose you you do smoke and you do drink and you uh, have an HPV negative cancer. You know, you mentioned that the prognosis with HPV positive cancers was over 90%. What is it for HPV negative cancers? So for the patients with a stage 3 and 4A disease, these are the people who get the aggressive chemo and radiation. HPV positive cancers have a 90% prognosis. It's 50% or less for the equivalent stage of HPV negative cancers. So it's a big difference, probably even a different disease. Dr. Hari Deshpande is Assistant Professor of Medicine in the section of Medical Oncology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers@yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program. And we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.